Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us kick off your week and be part of your day. Wow. Exciting time in Kansas City. Kansas City Chiefs fans, I would imagine, still partying, and that party will go on for some time. Congratulations to them the Super Bowl win yesterday over San Francisco. Well, here's what we're going to talk about today. Weather, some parts of the country enjoying some spring-like weather over the weekend and to kick off this week, but is that going to last very much longer? We'll talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We'll also be talking today with the CEO of the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. Some interesting research on what consumers are saying and thinking about herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, do they even know the difference? But they evidently do have some real concerns. We'll talk about that and what agriculture's response should be. And also Ron Lamberty with the American Coalition for Ethanol will join us to talk about uh, their input to USDA on what needs to be done to improve and to build the uh, higher blend of renewable fuels infrastructure in this country. country. What do we need to get more... um, higher blends out there as far as pumps and availability, things like that. Uh, We'll talk about that with Ron Lamberty a little bit later on. But we always look forward to kicking off the week talking with Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Where are you today? I'm back in California, Mike, but I was still cheering on those Chiefs. What a game, huh? <laughs> Yeah. We're going to start a new segment, Where's Sarah, I think, and uh, try to figure out where you are each week because you do get around. Well, it's going to be quite a week. I mean, we have the Iowa caucuses today. We have a State of the Union speech tomorrow. Uh, we still got the the impeachment proceedings, although we think we know how those are going to turn out, but they're still going on. So it's just an interesting mix of uh, politics right now. It certainly is. Of course, all, a lot of the political buzz is focused on Iowa, my home state, and um, talking to people there. There's still a lot of indecision. You know, it's very close with Bernie Sanders polling slightly above former Vice President Joe Biden. And then you've still got uh, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg in the hunt. Amy Klobuchar seems to be gaining a little bit more steam as a potential moderate compromise between some of the candidates. And so, I think it's it's going to be kind of a nail-biter until later tonight to see not the first round. I don't expect is going to de- declare a clear winner, but uh, by the second round and as they go through these uh, caucus uh, discussions, um, who's going to be the winner tonight? And it will be interesting as this plays out through the year. President Trump has obviously done quite a few things here lately, has a number of victories that he can uh, point to to help shore up that base in states like Iowa. But that renewable uh, fuels issue and how they've handled the small refinery exemptions to the RFS is still a uh, sore point uh, with a lot of folks. It'll be interesting to see how much of a factor that is as we head towards the general election. I think you're exactly right, Mike. But one of the things we found interesting is we sent one of our editors out to the renewable fuels meeting where, you know, the previous uh, round of nominees all showed up, uh, or at least quite a few of them did. And this time the Democratic candidates didn't show up at all. So if you're the individuals are trying to decide who's going to have the best biofuels policy, what's going to be the big difference between Trump and some of the Democratic candidates, I don't know that that's you know, there's a major gap there in how people will view that. 
But uh, certainly uh, the president didn't do himself any favors when he allowed these uh, exemptions to still remain. And, of course, you've already covered the lawsuit that is going to perhaps Mm -hmm. change what they can actually do on those exemptions. But for now, I think there is a lot of uh, really folks that are still sore over how the president has handled ethanol. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out uh, through the course of this election. We're talking with Sarah Wyan from AgriPulse. Interesting on trade. Um, we've heard about, you know, the efforts by the administration to get something done with Europe and India. Uh, but we've not really talked much about the possibility of a trade deal with Kenya. What could we uh, see coming there? What are you hearing? Yeah, as we reported in our Washington Week Ahead, we knew that the administration was trying to figure out which African country was going to be the best to really target starting out. And the fact that the leader of Kenya is coming over to visit at the White House this week is the first signal that really this is the country that's going to be targeted. So we know that, uh, you know, there's so much potential in Africa. The Chinese have already done a lot of legwork to try to build up relations with African countries. And so this could be the start of really our African strategy, so to speak, of trying to make sure that we have free trade agreements with some of the leading uh, targets in African uh, nations. So uh, it's pretty exciting to see that the administration is really forging ahead on all these trade agreements. But as you know, Mike, uh, the proof is in the pudding on all of these things. And just when we had the excitement of a signing of a phase one trade deal with China, now the coronavirus issue is certainly uh, uh, could certainly impact when and how much China actually buys from us this year. Well, it certainly does. I mean, when you've got all the major airlines shutting down, we've decided that we have to monitor, and not just the U.S., every country that's uh, looking at this is trying to keep the coronavirus outside of their borders, and you know that this is going to have an impact on slowing things down. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the administration to start to claim some of these trade wins uh, until we start to see that uh, contained as well as uh, a lot of the other you know, forces at, at play here. It, it might be six to nine months until we start to see some market reaction instead of, you know, some people have been thinking it might be three months. And if that's the case, if it takes most of the year before that really kicks in, do we see another round of MFP payments? You know, President Trump has not said he's going to do a third round yet. Secretary Purdue has said that he really hopes that there's no need to have the third round. But you can just do the math and look at everything and see these factors at play on a global basis. And think also it's a year divisible by four, a lot of presidential politics at play. So I think the odds would favor that there could be another 2020 round rather than not. Yeah, the closer we get to the November election and if we're still not seeing that trade deal really kick in uh i think that increases the chances don't you of mfp payment round three that's certainly what i'm hearing from a lot of farmers and lenders that if we don't start to see market reaction sooner than later that uh, there's going to be tremendous pressure on the white house to issue a 2020 tranche so i i do think that there's a, a favorable chance of that again no one has officially announced this, but you can just look at all these factors at play and estimate that the pressures will certainly be there if there's not been an improvement in commodity prices. Yep, one of those stories we will be watching. All right, Sarah, good to talk with you. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. Take care. Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Just a reminder, later this week, I will be in San Antonio, Texas for the Cattle Industry Convention. And our broadcast from San Antonio will be this Thursday and Friday. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Some spring-like weather for some parts of the country here the last couple of days. How much longer is that going to last? We'll talk with Bryce next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, I don't think I was alone. A lot of parts of the Midwest uh, had a case of spring fever here the last day or so. Some really mild temperatures for early February. I've got a feeling that's probably not going to last too much longer. Let's uh, bring in DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, is reality about to return here on the weather? Well, it depends on what you uh, what you want to uh, put for a reality tag, Mike. Uh, we are going to have a more seasonal trend on temperatures, but the occurrence of a real harsh, uh, bitter cold wave like we had a year ago is not likely. And so that's the way things are playing out. Our uh, Our air source is going to be kind of a mix from the Pacific and then uh, the polar region, but not Arctic. So if you are... If you are hoping for a return to the polar vortex of a year ago, um, you you might be disappointed. And so I just want to uh, just want to mention that, and and uh, you know don't want to get your hopes up that we're going to all of a sudden have a repeat of that. Well, I don't think too many people are uh, hoping for a return of the polar vortex, but and you're right. It, it's uh, it really, I guess, is perception. I mean, yeah. Uh, here in Illinois, where I'm at, you know, around 60 degrees yesterday and, and today. So that's, you know, that's not going to continue, obviously. But if it only is going to get in the mid-30s, that's still pretty good for this time of year, as you point out. But what about precipitation? Is there snow or anything coming along with it? It's going to be a, uh, a real widespread difference uh, across the central part of the country um, because we're we're getting a little snow in uh, South Dakota and central minnesota today but it's pretty uh, isolated and pretty light there is heavier snow from the black hills in south dakota and then west into the rockies and wyoming and um, the energy with that snow production is going to actually drop all the way south into central texas during the next 24 hours uh, setting up a, a long frontal boundary all the way from el paso uh, northeast to uh, practically toronto ontario and uh, with this uh, long front, we're going to see um, snow in the southern plains that actually could be pretty heavy in the Texas Panhandle and western Oklahoma, totaling up to about six inches or so, and then uh, rain that uh, could be quite heavy uh, in the Delta, the Ohio Valley, the Tennessee Valley, and then through the southeast, anywhere from possibly two to four or five inches of rain. And uh, so that's going to be a, a possible flood situation there because we know that the uh, water uh, situation in the Delta is already saturated 
A lot of rivers are running full, and uh, there still is uh, plenty of flood concern there. But then farther north, we will get some lighter rains uh, from the Mississippi Valley eastward, and then hardly anything over the uh, northwestern Midwest in, in Minnesota, the Dakotas, uh, the northern half of Nebraska, most of Iowa. Uh, so it's going to be a real difference on that precipitation uh, setup as we go through this week. I uh, couldn't help but notice tomorrow in San Antonio, 82. Wednesday, when I go there for the Cattle Industry Convention, 48. It seems to, yeah, I just did this to Tampa a couple of weeks ago when I was down there. So now it uh, seems the cool weather seems to follow me wherever I go. But still, that's uh, that's not too bad. Um, let's talk about this year compared to a year ago. Uh, we were very concerned that we're going to have a similar pattern this year. And we'll, we'll see how it plays out. And I know you had concerns, and there's still concerns about a wet spring because we don't have much margin for error. As you mentioned, a lot of areas are still very, very wet. But certainly there's a big change between that polar vortex of a year ago and what we're dealing with now. Oh, it's uh, it, it really is worlds apart uh, because a year ago uh, this past weekend was uh, the kind of the anniversary of that big, uh, big, uh, bitter cold outbreak that stayed with us for so long, and uh, that's the weekend when uh, there were some all-time temperature records set in parts of the Midwest. And uh, then, as we know, the um, you know the cold pattern uh, combined with uh, energy from a weak El Nino that was in effect last year to just keep this uh, terrific stormy trend going and uh, brought all sorts of problems that are still being dealt with, and and, uh, we're not going to be over that for a while yet. The uh, situation right now in terms of the upper air features does not have that that, uh, funnel for the bitter cold air coming south, so we are getting more of a mix in terms of our our air sources, and that does lead to a, a a big difference. I mean, between seasonal and then sharply below normal. As we go through the spring, I do think that we're going to be in line for uh, still normal to below normal temperatures and uh, near normal precipitation at at least. I don't think that we can get away from uh, the uh, from the uh, trend that we are in, which is for a wetter spring uh, setup when it comes to the precipitation side of things, and uh, that does imply that there's going to be a slow start to field work because we know that uh, the soil profile is so full that it's going to take time for that ground to warm up and even to dry out to even uh, marginal field work condition. And so I think that we do, we are faced with that. I don't think that uh, we're going to be in line for another round of uh, of you know kind of long-standing flooding like we had last year. But there still are going to be occurrences where there's um, some delays because of uh, either some wet ground or flooding here and there, and uh, the the opportunity uh, uh, parts, day parts, uh, segments, if you will. Uh, for getting work done are still going to be quite limited. And I know that producers are already planning to uh, deal with that in terms of, you know, getting equipment set up, making sure that, uh, you know, that auto steer and everything are ready to go. And uh, they're probably going to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of uh, even working ground when it's not quite um, as dry as they like it to be, just uh, in order to take advantage of the weather when it uh, actually arrives. We are talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, uh, what's going on weather-wise down in South America? 
little bit uh, stress happened in Argentina during the past weekend because it was pretty dry in Argentina, and it was also hot. Uh, temperatures got into the mid to upper 90s, and uh, they did have some rain mid, la- mid uh, to late last week over much of the central crop belt there. But, you know, it doesn't take long for that moisture to uh, evaporate when you get that kind of heat. So uh, Argentina, I think, has a pretty important week ahead, Mike. It is going to be uh, milder on temperatures, and there are several areas of rain that are indicated for this week in the Argentina forecast. But if that rain is uh, more scattered than uh, right now looks like, or if the amounts are lighter, it could be pretty stressful this uh, week later on in Argentina. So it's going to be an important week there. Now in Brazil, the uh, central and uh, north central parts of the country are going to have some pretty heavy rain this week. Mato Grosso and Goiás are going to have from four to six inches of rain. That uh, is going to disrupt their soybean harvest. Harvest is about 10% done right now. Um, it is uh, farther behind than it was last year. It's later than a year ago. That's no big surprise. And in south central Brazil, it is going to be dry and hot. Uh, Temperatures are going to be about 5 to 10 degrees above normal with limited rainfall, and that may be unfavorable for particularly the safrina corn crop in Paraná State. So there are a a few areas in South America that maybe are not quite as... um, quite as favorable in terms of crop conditions as we would like to see. But so far, again, there has not been any real widespread long-term crop weather problem that uh, indicates that there's just going to be a real drastic departure from what are expected as far as these uh, crop numbers go. But something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, real quick, yes, uh, check. What about what about Australia? In Australia, they've they've had some rains over eastern Australia recently. Uh, the only benefit they might see, Mike, is uh, some better soil moisture when they plant their next wheat crop, because we know the wheat production has been uh, taken down quite a bit, especially in eastern Australia. It does appear that things have uh, moderated to the point that some of the um, some of the terrific uh, fire uh, problems have uh, have let up somewhat where they've been able to get a handle on it after the uh, terrible damage they had here a month ago. All right, Bryce. Good to talk with you again. Thanks a lot. We'll check in again next week. Sounds good, Mike. Thank you. All right. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Charlie Arnott, CEO of the Center for Food Integrity. Some interesting research showing the online conversation around pesticides is expected to explode by 212% over the next two years. Also says consumers aren't even sure what pesticides are, but they are concerned about them. And what impact will that have and pressures will that put on ag producers moving forward? We'll talk about that next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. 
Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trade systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. With both the U.S.-China Phase 1 trade deal and the USMCA trade deal signed, traders now turning their focus for the next month towards what USDA will say first in this week's WASDE report. Then at the Agricultural Forum in Washington later on this month, the continuing spread of coronavirus has stayed in the news over the past week. Traders concerned about the uncertainty and how it could affect Chinese appetites could limit any export buying activity. 130,000 metric tons of U.S. soybeans sold to Egypt for delivery in the 2019-2020 marketing year, that according to USDA on Monday. An hour into the trading day, fraction to a penny and a fraction lower in soybeans, March down three quarters of a cent. 871 and three quarters. New crop November down a penny at 911 and a quarter. March corn down two and three quarters at 378 and a half. December at 389 down a penny and three quarters. Chicago wheat March down two and three quarters at 551. Kansas City March down three and three quarters, 461 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat March down two and a quarter at 531 and a half. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle, the April contract is near unchanged, up seven cents per hundred weight, one nineteen seventy five. Feeder cattle March contract down forty two at one thirty five sixty five. Cash cattle sales last week at one twenty two live in the south, down two compared to the prior week. Lean hog futures April thirty two cents higher, sixty one ninety two. The Dow is up 354 points. NASDAQ up 132. S&P up 35. March crude oil down 50 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We we'll always look forward to getting uh, the latest research from the Center for Food Integrity. It really gives us a good idea of what people are talking about, concerned about, and I think uh, agriculture certainly needs to be aware of that. We're talking now with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, thanks for joining us again. Interesting uh, research you have out now showing uh, the conversation among consumers about pesticides, and you expect this to be a huge issue the next couple of years. Mike, great to be with you as always, and we certainly do anticipate an increase, a significant increase of over 200% over the next two years. We have access to a system that combines big data and social science to really help us better understand and dig into uh, what are consumers talking about, what are the issues that they're concerned about, and then kind of what are their motivations, what are their values, what are their concerns. And this clearly indicates that when it comes to pesticides and chemicals used on crops and produce, etc., there is confusion, but also growing concern about the use of those products, and consumers really don't understand. So the question then becomes, how do we engage, and how do we really have that conversation? Because we know what consumers want is really the same thing that, that everybody wants, uh, safe, wholesome, affordable food that's grown in a way that protects people, animals, and the planet. 
So the real opportunity for those in agriculture is to be more engaged in that conversation and to help consumers understand what we do and, more importantly, why we do it. It's the why question that is absolutely essential to answer if we're going to be successful in building support for the technology and the products that we need to use in agriculture uh, to continue to be productive and continue to be competitive. Okay, let's get into that because it looks like, based on your research, that consumers are concerned about pesticides, but they really don't even know what they are, and they certainly can't make, in their own minds, they don't realize differences between pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, insecticides. Uh, all They kind of lump all that together, right? They do. They think of them kind of as these, these bad chemicals uh, that agriculture is using that puts risk, puts the environment at risk, puts food safety at risk, and really is, is uh, a challenge for them to understand what they should be doing and, and how they should think about chemicals and how they should think about food as it relates to the use of those chemicals in agriculture. So one of the opportunities is to, to really use analogies to help consumers understand uh, those in agriculture are using pesticides and, and other crop protection products and other uh, chemicals in a way that isn't that much different from how they do it at home. So whether they're using sprays at home to control bugs or spiders or they're using um, chemicals on their lawn to control weeds or to promote growth, um, we do the same kinds of things in agriculture. But here's the real opportunity from my perspective is to really help consumers understand the incredible precision that agriculture uses today in understanding exactly where those chemicals need to be applied, how those chemicals will be applied, and the monitoring and the other work that goes on to make sure that we are doing that in a way that is good for people, animals, and the planet. So clearly we do a much better job of, of using these with precision than the average homeowner would do when applying fertilizer or uh, weed control products on their lawn. And so being able to have that conversation to talk about how farmers partner with agronomists and others to really understand the specific needs and the tools that are available today to map fields down to a very precise level and how the technology enables farmers to do what actually consumers want them to do, which is to use the chemicals responsibly in a way that actually benefits consumers, helps produce safe food, reduces the impact on the environment, and helps keep food affordable. So rather than talking about the specific chemistry or the chemicals or the pesticide in specific terms, using those analogies and helping people understand the very precise way that they are used today can be helpful in kind of reframing that conversation. Um, so I think that's one approach we can take is just welcoming those questions, helping to embrace the concern that people have for wholesome, affordable food that's grown in a safe way. And then the conversation about, hey, we appreciate that. And in fact, those in agriculture share that same concern, which is why we've gone to very precise applications, using technology, using mapping in ways that consumers are unaware of to make sure we're doing what they actually want us to do. So we've got a great story to tell when it comes to how we are using crop protection chemicals today, but we need to tell it in a very different way. Yeah, yeah, and we're talking with uh, Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, I think back, for those of us old enough to remember, back uh, several years ago when there was a great public uh, concern and outcry about the use of uh, uh, pesticides and, and other crop inputs, and the public was very concerned about this. And so the, the answer became, 
biotechnology or, or GMOs as they became to uh, be known. And, you know, that was going to kind of be the answer. Hey, this technology will allow us to better use these products you're concerned about or in many cases use less of them. But somehow, even though that was supposed to, uh, you know, kind of alleviate the concerns of the public, it, it, it created a whole new set of concerns just because I don't think it was ever presented the right way. So maybe we can learn from lessons of the pa- uh, mistakes of the past and do it right this time. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. And I think, you know, I, I don't know who had to quote, but, but you know, it, it's only a, a loss or a failure if we fail to learn from it. I don't know if that was John Wooden or somebody else. But, but that's a really great point to make, is we can learn from our, our past mistakes or our past opportunities where we've talked about technology, we've tried to explain or to educate, as opposed to welcoming the skepticism and really reframing the conversation in such a way that consumers understand that what we're doing is exactly what they've asked us to do, uh, to make sure that we're using uh, crop protection chemicals and other technology in a way that allows us to produce safe, wholesome, affordable food that protects people, animals, and the planet. And that the technology we have today, just like people have GPS on their phones or GPS in their cars, allows us to be very precise. And where they might use crop protection, not crop protection chemicals, but they may use chemicals on their lawn, we can do the same thing in agriculture, but on a per acre or per unit basis, we actually use less because we can be so incredibly precise and do it in a way that helps us achieve what consumers want us to do. So part of it is just welcoming the questions, welcoming the conversation, and understanding that it's not going to be a technical conversation that helps build consumer trust. We really have to be able to reframe these issues in a way that is very relatable, um, simplified, and easily understood by consumers. Not dumbing it down, but putting it into a context that's relevant for someone who's not involved in agriculture. A real challenge here, though, Charlie, and I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that's the right way to go, too. But I, I look at the antibiotic issue. We have a society that can't seem to take enough or get enough antibiotics. They, they look at it as a solution to all, almost all health problems for humans, but they don't seem to want uh, livestock producers to use them in animals. They have a real concern about the use of antibiotics for animals to keep the animals healthy, the producing the food, the meat that we eat. Uh, so there's been a disconnect there. Are, are, are we going to face something similar with this then? There will always be that challenge because, Mike, it's always, it's always easier for me to say, Mike, I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing, but I'd like you to stop doing what you're doing. Right? It's always easier to ask somebody else to change their behavior than for, for me to do what I need to do. So part of this, again, is, is to kind of reframe that and to talk about just as homeowners or municipalities or others have an obligation to use these, uh, these crop protection chemicals or these lawn chemicals responsibly, we, we accept that responsibility in agriculture, and we hope everyone does, uh, to make sure we use these in a way that protects people, animals, and the planet. Let me share with you what we're actually doing in farming today because we're doing such a better job than we ever have before. And the responsible use of these chemicals actually allows us to produce the food you want, keep it affordable, and protect people, animals, and the planet. So there's always going to be that risk. There's always going to be a downside. There's always going to be a challenge in communicating and engaging effectively. I think the the way that we look at it is the greater risk, the greater challenge, is to choose not to engage in that conversation and to allow others to frame those issues and to control the debate in a way where agriculture's voice is not adequately represented. So there's no perfect solution. Uh, There's no silver bullet. It would be wonderful if there were. 
but it doesn't exist. And so the best opportunity we have is to be engaged in this conversation, but to your point, realize it's not necessarily perfect, uh, and there isn't going to be a perfect answer in, in engaging in these discussions, but understanding uh, what consumers are looking for, the concerns they have, puts us in the best possible situation to have a favorable outcome. And in case anyone's wondering just how many people are actually talking about pesticides, well, your research showing over 20 million U.S. consumers engaged in online conversations about pesticides now, and you expect that number to go up to over 63 million the next couple of years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is not something that agriculture can ignore. Uh, this is one of those um, not sleeping giants because 20 million are already engaged in that conversation, but it is one of those issues where we do anticipate significant growth in the in the consumer conversation around it because people are increasingly interested in uh, the health of, of the food that they consume, the impact on the environment. So whether you're producing crops or animals or produce, whatever it happens to be, there's a growing concern about is this food good for me, and is this food good for the environment? Is our production practices good for the environment? So understanding that that's going to continue to increase dramatically really is a, is a signal to those in agriculture that we need to continue to engage, we need to continue to find the best possible strategies, and then remain committed to it over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because oftentimes, because those in farming and agriculture are busy farming, it's difficult to stay engaged, but we've got to be engaged and stay there if we want to be successful. Yep, agriculture has a good story to tell, but we need to do uh, find the best ways of telling it. All right, Charlie, thank you very much. Always enjoy it. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, joining us on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, USDA requested information on a Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program, looking for ways to expand domestic ethanol and biodiesel availability uh, throughout the country. The American Coalition for Ethanol submitted comments, and joining us now is Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President and Market Development Director for ACE. Ron, good to talk with you again. Uh, what did you suggest to USDA? Well, the main concerns we have about uh, stations that offer E15 and flex fuels is that a lot of them could do E15 pretty inexpensively, and there's been such an aggressive uh, misinformation campaign since E15 was approved uh, where station owners have been told over and over again that they can't and it's too expensive to add. You know, even the ones that would need some equipment, you're usually talking about five, ten thousand, something like that. But because they've been told it's hundreds of thousands, they haven't even checked. So what we recommended was a grant program that would be about what a person would have to pay at the most and probably might even be more like, you know, $10,000 to convert and maybe if it costs them five, because we need to have those station owners look into it. Um, it's been my experience over the years as a, as a station owner and working with station owners that um, if you give them $10,000 to do something, they'll look into it and try and get it done for eight or five or maybe even $3,000. So I think that could move a lot of stations quickly. So that was, that was one of them. 
And the other one was that, you know, we need to keep the money, some larger funds available for people who want to continue to do flex fuels because the stations that have that are the ones that are really doing well. And actually that moves a lot of our volume, a lot, you know, a, a station, you sell a gallon of E15, it's got 5% more ethanol than E10. You sell a, a gallon of even E70 or E85, you're talking 12 to 15 times as much ethanol as that so just you know basically that and then making sure that that there's a way that these these guys get the information from from whether it's from us or the other groups or a reliable source but we need to bombard the the uh the media as much uh, and, and the trade shows and that sort of stuff as much as the other guys have come out to tell them that they can't do it i think a lot of us don't really understand what it takes for uh, a retailer to offer these higher blends of biofuels. Take us into that in that decision-making process and what's required and what are the biggest hurdles for them? Yeah, well, for, for, for ethanol specifically, um, if, if all you're doing is switching from E10 to E15, it is highly likely that your tanks and lines and everything underground is compatible. Um, above ground, you might have to change out hoses and nozzles, or if you have some really old pumps, and I mean, they'd have to be like prior to 2003, so 17-year-old pumps, you might have to upgrade those in some way. Um, when, when UL did their tests and did E15, um, you know, a specific one, they actually did E25 because there was no rating, you know, the, the, the E10 rating actually said 15% ethanol, but then UL said, no, we didn't really mean 15, we meant 10. So they did a 25, and all that is is it changed some of the some of the elastomers, so basically gaskets, little rubber parts that are in the in the pumps, you know, piping, um, and, and the meter that measures the thing. So, you know, you're talking about a few cents if you do it at the, you know, on the factory line, but then to change it, you'd have to actually disassemble all that stuff, put the different O-rings and gaskets in, and then reassemble it. But so, you know, that would cost you several hundred dollars, maybe, you know, a thousand if you had to hire somebody to do it. So to do E15 is pretty inexpensive, and that's one of the things we wanted to make sure of is that station owners knew that because they think they have to change their tanks and dig holes and all that sort of stuff so they don't even bother. Now, if you're doing a higher blend like E85, then that requires some different metals or plated metals. Um, so that'll run like on a new dispenser, uh, anywhere from $7,500 to $10,000 more on a, on a dispenser, you know, one of those pumps you pull up to at the, at the uh, station. It's about a twenty dollars to $25,000 item. And if you, um, if you put, if you make it E85 compatible, it's you know thirty to thirty-five thousand sometimes. So that requires a little bit more money. But um, you know, if you're doing that as part of a project that costs a couple hundred thousand, and you can get grants to offset a good chunk of the upgrade or most of the upgrade, even in, in most cases, like the program we did several years ago, was more than the upgrade. So it's just a matter of it, it's the grants pay for more than the upgrades cost. Um, they did last time. It's just a matter of making sure these people under, you know, know about it and they understand because a lot of them don't have, you know, haven't, haven't looked in it, into it a lot right. more than, like you said, people listening to this call. <laughs> so if grants are available, if that money's available to, to cover the costs of making the changes, do you think there are a number of retailers out there 
that aren't offering these higher blends now that would in the future? Yeah, and I think there's two parts to that. One of them, they, if they know that it's inexpensive and they can offer it, um, and they pay attention to the fact that other people who have done it, which was what basically what we got out of the first round of funding from USDA in 2015, I think it was, you know, you got some of these big name guys out there that are doing it and have been doing it for a while. So, you know, they know it can be done. And, you know, those people who have E15 in right now are selling a pretty good percentage of it. And typically, if you put premium in a station, you'd be lucky if it's a 5% item, if you sell 5% of your volume. And, you know, most people who do E15 sell 15 to 20% of it. So I think there's enough. You know, the first round gave us some some names that people recognize, so they trusted. It gave them some history. Um, so, you know, I think what'll happen is if you say, "Hey, there's this money available to switch," what we're hoping is that they'll check. They'll they'll call their pump company and say, "Hey, you know, just out of curiosity, how much would it cost me to switch?" And right. If they found out it cost eight thousand and they can get ten, they'll do it. We'll see what USDA decides. Ron, thanks a lot for the update. Good to talk with you. Yep, good to talk to you. Thanks, Mike. Take care, Ron. Ron Lambert, he's Senior Vice President, Market Development Director for the American Coalition for Ethanol. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Have a great day, everyone. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions.